James chapter 4. So previously in James, we saw the reality there there is a battle raging within all of us. Our love for God, for his glory is at war with our desire for the things of this world. In chapter 4, verse 4, we were warned that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The commands, warnings, and encouragements found in the book of James are not tips for how we can have a successful life. This book is about two opposing kingdoms. It is about life and death. It is about a living faith versus a lifeless, dead faith. That's where the title of this series comes from, Living Out Your Faith. Truth faith is visible and active, originating from a heart that is changed by the working of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel. With this in mind, we will look at James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. In these verses, James will continue the admonition found in verse 10, just above these, these verses. There it says in verse 10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There are two realities that we will focus on this morning that will help us as we strive to um, understand and obey this command. The first reality is that there is only one lawgiver and judge in verses 11 through 12. And the second is that there is only one sovereign Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to help us as we seek to understand and then apply this passage of scripture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that it is complete and that it is powerful. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you will not let the words of God fall to the ground. They will not return void. Lord, I pray for everyone here today that your words will affect the softening of our hearts and that they will bring about humility in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words. God, I pray that no one here today would go away hardened against the gospel. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are here among us. And I pray that you will do a work in this little family. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read together verses 11 through 12 first. It says in verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There are a few concepts in Scripture that are more misunderstood, misapplied, or simply just ignored. How many conversations about God's righteous standards have been silenced by the simple phrase, the Bible says you can't judge me. And then on the other side, how much pain and suffering has been let loose in the world by busybodies, constantly getting involved in other people's business, spreading rumors and gossip like wildfires. 
Though many have misunderstood or ignored this concept, there is clear truth here for the believer. In verse 11, James clearly states, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Speaking evil against another person could also be translated as slander. Slander carries with it the idea of speaking falsely about another person with malicious intent to discredit the reputation. Slander is such a massive problem that even the lost world around us identifies it as a plague on society. To the extent that most countries carry severe penalties if convicted of slander. Lying, creating your own facts, or even just voicing as fact unproven assumptions about another person destroys and burns. Proverbs 16 verse 28 says, A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. In the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 10, David is king of all Israel. One of his allies, the king of Ammon, dies and his son Hanan reigned in his place. David decides to show kindness to the new king of Ammon and sends messengers to Hanan in order to express his condolences and to speak words of peace and friendships, friendship to the young king. We'll pick up the story in chapter 10, verse 3. It says, And David's servants came into the land of, of the Ammonites, But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and overthrow it? The advisors of the king of Ammon spoke of false accusation. They voiced assumptions about David's motives based on their own deceptiveness. Then they whispered evil words against David into Hanan's ear. I'll leave the rest of the details of the story for your own discovery. It's in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 10. But in the end, this one false accusation gave birth to a series of events that led to the breaking of entire nations and the death of over 40,000 people. No wonder the Lord speaks so harshly about lying, twisting words and facts for your own purpose, often listing it among sins we want to label as much more serious. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes or a proud, uplifted look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Think about the very first temptation and sin that ever took place on this earth. It was the result of a lie. Satan, in the form of a snake, spoke evil, Against the Lord, the Creator, God. Satan lied about God's words and then provoked doubt in Eve's mind by implying that God was holding back good from her, ultimately bringing into question God's integrity 
and whether or not God even truly loved Eve. We look at Eve and think, you were so foolish. You had everything. Everything was perfect. And then you believe this one simple lie. But to this day, Satan still blinds the hearts and minds of people who fall victim to the very same lie. The lie that God is holding back from you. He doesn't really care about you. He doesn't really love you. In John 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies and then teaches that those who are known as liars belong to their father, the devil. God hates lies. They are an abomination to him. How unfitting is it then for Christians to slander one another, to lie about one another? In verse 10, James says, do not... Uh, sorry, verse 11, it says, do not speak evil against one another's one another brothers. He repeats this family language twice or familial language twice to emphasize the messed up nature of siblings stabbing one another in the back. He's, it, he's literally saying, don't speak evil against brothers, brothers. How does this happen in the church? What does this look like in reality for us? There's much to consider on this topic in the scriptures, but I hope to focus our attention on three specific areas. The the first way we speak evil against one another is through lying or slander as discussed already. There's no question or defense for speaking falsely about another person with malicious intent to discredit their reputation. But also under the umbrella of lying is voicing anything as fact that is in reality an assumption. To state something as the truth when it is simply an idea in our mind or just one possibility is to lie because we are misrepresenting the truth. The second way we speak evil against one another is by speaking the truth To the wrong person at the wrong time. Think carefully about this. I did not say anything about lying. What this person says is the truth. But they are speaking the truth to the wrong person at the wrong time. Think with me about Jesus' command in Matthew 18, verse 15 through 17. This begins in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He's restored. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. See, this is, this is pulling in that time thing. You go to him first, then. Verse 17, let's continue looking at this. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There is little, if any, wiggle room in this command. If your brother sins against you, go to him alone. The point Jesus is getting at is to seek swift 
and private restoration of relationships without unnecessarily escalating a situation and without involving a bunch of people who have nothing to do with accomplishing restoration and peace. In fact, when you occupy yourself with spreading about the sins of others, you are in fact burdening the heart of everyone who hears you, unnecessarily tempting them to bitterness, and in so doing you wrong not only the one who you're speaking about, but you also wrong the one you're speaking to. The reality is that most, if not all, of this talk about the one in sin is not spoken to someone who can be part of the solution. It is not spoken out of a desire to restore the one in sin. Instead, the scriptures say that we speak like this because it feeds our sinful desires. It feeds the old dead man. Often the Bible pictures speaking gossip to another as feeding someone a tasty piece of food. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Those who practice gossip are compared to talented chefs. They study, they prepare, and present their tasty treats with much skill, all to the delight of the one who receives the food. This speaks to the wickedness of our own hearts. We naturally delight in what God calls poisonous and struggle to receive what he says brings life, joy, and peace. Proverbs 17.9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. This passage is not encouraging us to sweep things under the rug. Instead, it points to the wisdom and godliness of never bringing up a matter again once it's finished. If you confront your brother of sin and he repents, then you are restored and the matter is closed. Leave it closed. Do not repeat it to another, no matter how tempting of a morsel of of food it may seem. A third way that we speak evil against one another is by speaking truth to someone out of anger, envy, or bitterness, rather than speaking the truth in love. Notice that this person has the the first two things right. He is speaking the truth and he is speaking to the right person, but he is not speaking in love. When I looked up the, the phrase speak evil against in the original language, I noticed that it could also be translated as to rail at someone. To rail at someone can be defined as to criticize, abraid, or berate one severely and bitterly, especially at length. In Ephesians 4, we are given several commands about what our speech is supposed to sound like. In verse 15 of Ephesians 4, it says to speak the truth. In love, always. And in verse 29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
So brothers and sisters, the, the matter is clear. If any one of these forms of speaking evil against one another is in our hearts or is playing itself, already playing itself out in our actions, then God calls us to confess our sins, to seek restoration for ourselves, and then to remain silent until our speech is submissive and obedient to the words of God. It doesn't matter what our emotions are telling us in that moment. It doesn't matter what my parents used to do or yours used to do. It doesn't matter if you truly have been wronged. God calls us to peace. He has invited us into this family, his family, as adopted children. And he commands us to stop stabbing his children, your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, in the back. He commands us to stop creating disunity in this family, the family of God. He calls us to pursue peace and deny ourselves personal satisfaction, revenge, and the secret pleasure of just getting that word in about someone else. Looking again at James chapter 4, verse 11, it continues by saying, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. It is important to note that the concept of speaking evil of a brother is closely tied to the idea of judging a brother in this passage, in this context. To judge a brother in this context is to take on a mantle of responsibility that God has simply not given us. It is, in fact, to take on authority that is God's alone. This word judge has the idea of elevating myself above other people, sitting down in a seat of authority and determining eternal destinies of those around me based on how they measure up to me, my standards. We all have done this at one point or another, comparing others based on how they stack up against you. If they are seen as more righteous than you, then you consider them as a good person, maybe a little overzealous, but still a decent guy. If they are less righteous than you, then you hold them in contempt despising them for their weakness, doubting whether they are even a believer. Jesus expressed the sickness of our heart this way in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Jesus told, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, 
standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To speak, think, or act as the self-righteous Pharisee above is the opposite of the law of Christ. Jesus summed up the entire, this, the entire law this way in Matthew 22, verse 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So follow with me James' reasoning here in verse 11. We are called to forgive one another, not speaking evil against one another, but instead going to one another quickly out of love and a desire for restoration. But if we instead stand back, Harden against one another, spreading gossip and pronouncing condemnation on one another with no thought for restoration. James says we not only condemn our brothers as unworthy, unfit, and evil, we in fact speak evil against the law of Christ, condemning it as unworthy of our obedience, unfit to guide our actions and ultimately as evil. The final portion of verse 11 continues his reasoning. It says, but if you judge the law, this law of Christ, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. This sentence pinpoints the heart of our problem. It's our pride. If we go about condemning one another with no thought of restoration, we are in reality denying the fact that we too are in desperate need of the mercy and grace of God. If this is true of us, we are speaking and acting as if we are God, making up our own rules and enforcing them in our own way. This person has rejected the law of God and sat down on God's throne as lawgiver and judge over others. In verse 12, we see God's response to this person who speaks evil against and judges his brother. God says there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Ultimately, there is only one lawgiver and judge the Lord God, the Almighty, who is able to save and who is able to destroy. We are not able to do either. And we should not think, speak, or act in a way that implies that we can. To the person who goes on or goes about speaking evil against and wrongly judging his brothers as unworthy of the love of God, unworthy of eternal life, God says, Who are you to judge your neighbor? Get off my throne. There is only one lawgiver and judge. 
before moving forward, I would like to consider just a few things with you about this text. First, if you take God's words and accurately speak the truth in love, you are not guilty of this sin, the sin of speaking evil against or judging your brother. In fact, that is exactly what we are commanded to do for our brothers and sisters and what we are commanded to do for the lost world as we make disciples of Jesus Christ. In James 5, verse 19 and 20, we see this type of command about brothers. And there are many. This one says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, someone confronts him and speaks the truth in love, Verse 20, let him know that whoever brings um, back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And in verse 20, uh, and in Matthew 28, verse 18, we are commissioned by Christ to the lost. So that was to brothers. Now this is to the lost world. Christ said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Both these verses are talking about the speaking the truth in love, whether it be to your brother or your sister or to the lost world. The second thing I would like to consider is that there will be times When wisdom dictates that you do involve other people prior to confronting someone about sin. This will often be the case when men and women in the church are confronting one another privately and they want to remain above reproach. It's also possible that you have no idea how to confront an issue or how to correct it. And therefore you go to an older believer for wisdom and guidance. But this must always be done for the purpose of restoration and peace, only involving someone if they are a necessary part of the solution. The third thing I'd like to consider with you is that these passages should never be used to sweep sin under the rug, to hide it from the light of the truth whether it be just ignoring the problem entirely or to try to hide it in some other way. I'll give you one example, and there are, there are several examples, but I'll give you one. If you are being physically abused, flee the abuse and shed the light of the truth on the abuse. It does not matter who the offender is. A family member, a spiritual leader, do not fall victim to this twisting of Scripture where they take passages like this and say, oh, well, you can't tell tell anyone else. It's just between you and me. And then they continue on with the abuse. Flee the abuse and bring the light of the gospel onto it. The point of this passage is not to silence the truth. Instead, this was written to confront believers who have a proud and judgmental spirit. 
In James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, we are given another call to humble yourself before the Lord. Because there is only one sovereign Lord. We'll begin in verse 13. It says, Come now, you, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. This passage continues the confrontation of any form of pride in our hearts before God. The person speaking in verse 13 is speaking out of the arrogance of their heart. As if because they spoke the words and intend in their hearts to accomplish something, it's as good as done. This person speaks of the future as something he can control, something he can forecast and manipulate, never recognizing the fragile and temporal nature of his life, his plans, his personal kingdom he is building. James says our lives here on earth are like a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I remember as a child growing up in Cape Town that I would wake up on a cold winter morning completely covered in like five layers of blankets with only my face half exposed simply so I could breathe. And as I woke up, I was shocked to realize it was so cold in my room. I could see my own breath for a moment as I breathed out before it instantly disappeared. That is the sense of what James is picturing. Our life here on earth is fleeting. It's running away from us, disappearing as suddenly as it began. Since this is the fact of the matter, you can see the foolishness of going about life in a proud way, as if you are above calamity, beyond the reach of misfortune, able to succeed by the strength of your own will alone. Notice, though, that the proud man in verse 13 doesn't shake his fist in God's face and proclaim, it doesn't matter what you say, God, I'm going to do this and succeed anyway. There have certainly been people who live their lives that way, but the proud person in verse 13 simply says, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. When you think about this statement, it actually doesn't sound all that bad. But James is emphasizing the godless nature of this proud person's thinking. A person doesn't have to blaspheme God to be godless without God or opposed to God. Merely the act of living your life with God as an afterthought or is barely acknowledging him him at all, is an insult to his name, the creator God, the one who holds everything together by the power of his might. Instead, James says that you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. 
This is not teaching that we must always say, if the Lord wills, before and after every statement. Fight the urge to take this teaching on humility and turn it into another law for you to follow. Instead, receive this admonition for what it is. Examine yourself. See if any arrogance or pride has a hold in your heart and then let humility dictate how you think, speak, and act. For there is only one sovereign Lord, one supreme ruler, only one with ultimate power, only one who thinks and speaks reality into existence. To the one who continues living with God as an afterthought, James says in verse 16, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Paul says in chapter 6 of his letter to the Galatians, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the opposing ways of thinking, speaking, and acting? The proud man ignores God and boasts in his own ability to live and succeed. The humble man acknowledges God's hand in all things, thanking him for every good thing he has and asking him to go before him and with him in every endeavor. In Exodus 33, verse 15, Moses is leading the people of Israel and he pleads with God saying this, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Moses did not want to take another step forward unless he knew that God was with him, going before him and behind him. Why? Because he cherished God, not wanting to begin a task without the Lord's blessing and presence with him. This is not a call to religious superstition. Just because you say if the Lord wills does not mean you will have health wealth, and prosperity on your journey. In fact, if you say those words out of superstition and fear alone, I'd suggest your actions are just as godless as the proud man's boasting. Instead, this passage calls us to humility that comes from a heart that rightly values God for who he says he is. A heart that has been changed by the glorious news of God's redeeming a people for himself. A heart that longs for and cherishes God's ways and his presence with us daily. A heart that doesn't want to take another step forward unless God is going before us and with us. This morning we have seen two reasons why we must humble ourselves before the Lord. Because there is only one lawgiver and judge, and it is not us. And secondly, because there is only one sovereign Lord. To think, speak, and act as if this was not the case is to live in opposition to God. Because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
James concludes this portion of Scripture with a proverb of warning in verse 17. He says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. With that warning in mind, I repeat the call that Jesus cried out to the masses in Israel. He said, Repent and believe. Repent. Agree with God about any sinfulness in your own heart, as I have done this week about my own heart and in my own life. And then turn from that sinfulness to pursue wholeheartedly with abandon after God and his ways. Secondly, believe. Cast yourself upon the Lord, abandoning all other hope. Trusting that he alone is able to accomplish all that he has promised. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much again for your word. Thank you that you have not left us here on earth alone without a testimony of your goodness, your care, and your love for us. Thank you that you would not have us be children just running around hurting and damaging and burning one another. But instead that you as a loving and caring father teach us and instruct us and discipline us so that we can be a true family, the family of God. Lord, I pray that we would be such a family that the lost world around us cannot help but see the beauty of your infinite glory, your infinite beauty and worth. Father, I pray for all those sitting here and I pray for my own heart as well. Lord, let us not walk out of here with hearts that are hardened. Let us walk out of here with hearts that are softened to the truth hearts that are humbled for our Lord and hearts that are praising you because you are perfect, complete, and able to fulfill everything that you've promised to us. In Jesus' name, amen.